Glad that you're here. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. And uh, because of our topic this week, I really wanted to find a warm, fuzzy, heart-tugging story to get us started. But I couldn't find one, so we're just going to dive straight in. Okay? You ready? As soon as I told people I was going to preach on hell this week, the question started. What are you going to say? Is this going to be awkward? Are you going to try and scare people? Some people said, this topic freaks me out. Other people said, this is going to be awesome. And uh, it just proved to me once again that the topic of hell coming out of Scripture brings out a far-ranging set of emotions and responses, especially out there in the quote-unquote real world. In our modern culture, the existence of hell is actually comical, Right? Because the topic of hell makes people nervous, we tend to turn it into comedy. We reduce hell and the devil into a caricature so that we can laugh at it. Case in point, here's a picture of a far side comic. And, uh, you know, there's the guys lining up for hell. They're getting their harp. They're coming into, or in heaven, getting their harp. They're coming into hell. It's like, here's your accordion. Here's your accordion. Here's your accordion. The fact that you guys don't get that is truly sad. So, um, but it's, it's seen as comedy. Secondly, in modern culture, the existence of hell is debated. I mean, this is a hot topic. Even amongst Christians, recently there was a movement among some leading, uh, well-known Christian leaders who questioned the very existence of hell. And the debates and the arguments raged on as people tried to deal with the difficult and even troubling doctrine in Scripture. In our modern culture, some people see the reality of hell as repulsive. And they'll just ask the question, I mean, how can any right-minded person believe that eternal punishment even exists? And people try to reconcile in their mind. You know, you know, the concept of hell, and they see it as, as kind of twisted and kind of evil. And, and those that even have even a, a limited spiritual framework will look at it and they're like, how do we reconcile the angry, wrathful God of the Old Testament? Even though if you read the Old Testament, you find that he's actually very loving and patient. How do I reconcile that with the, with the loving Jesus of the New Testament, who, if you read the New Testament, was actually filled with more justice and brutal honesty than any of us would want to admit how, how do you reconcile those things and the people just, people just end up with this uncomfortable tension that it ends up in a place that kind of goes like this. Well, that just can't be true. That just can't be true. I want to remind you of something this weekend. Just because something is hard doesn't make it untrue. Just because something's difficult to hear doesn't make it untrue. Here's another point. In our modern culture, the reality of hell is often seen as unjust. And I kind of laugh at this because we're such a justice-driven culture. I mean, if I cut you off on the guide, you want justice. Especially if my license plate is from a different country, you want me dead. That's what you're thinking, right? You know, justice must be... Ah. <laughs> Trouble. <laughs> All right? I mean, one traffic infraction that affects your life, and you break eight out of ten commandments within a mile. I mean, that's how it works, right? We hear of rape and molestation. We want justice. We tell somebody needs to stand up for justice until God stands up for justice and then we judge him. We ask the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? I would actually think in such a justice-driven culture that we would actually enjoy this. Because it means that there is a place where justice is going to be served, but it just seems like we get a little inconsistent with it when it gets personal. We're going to get to the myth about God sending people to hell in a few minutes, but I actually enjoy when people ask me this question. How could a loving God send people to hell? Because my response is both a statement and a question. And what I actually ask is, so what then you, you really want is everybody to get into heaven, right? And they're like, yes, I want everybody to get into heaven. 
I want God to just swing open the doors and we're all going to call it good. And they're just like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. I'm like, okay, then what that means is you want to share your eternity with the most evil of the evil. So you're going to have no problem standing beside Edie Amin, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, Pol Pot, the worst of the, uh, of the serial killers of the world. And they're like, no, 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 not them. Just good people. I'm like, oh, so then you do want justice. You just want justice on your terms. You want to be able to put the arrow with regards to who gets in and who doesn't get in. So you actually want justice. You just want to do it on your terms. Why don't you want to allow God to do justice on his terms? Do you actually think you're smarter than God? And they're like, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Well, I never really thought about it this way. We all want justice. Can I really tick off the people that don't even believe that there's a God that exists? You want to know where your justice bent comes from? God. Because that part of his character is actually imprinted because you were created in his image. Let's keep moving. The reality of hell in our modern world is often misunderstood. People get a picture in their mind of God sitting in heaven and, in heaven and smiling and clapping as people pitch off of this eternal cliff into a lake of fire. And that's the picture we get, but the Bible says exactly the opposite is true. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they would turn from their ways and live, turn, turn from your evil ways. Apparently God gets no joy at all from this thing called hell. And the topic of hell, it just creates so many problems on so many levels. Because I met a guy today, this morning already, who's just like, you know, I, I, I don't have any use for Christianity, but I really love Jesus. And he was bothered by the fact that Jesus actually talks about hell more than anybody else in Scripture. So we just have a hard time reconciling it. Jesus spoke of hell on multiple occasions. Matthew 13. He said, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they'll weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil and they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark chapter 9, 48, and they will be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 25, then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. And so we have to grasp and, and grapple with this entire idea of this whole thing. So if you're new to Christ the King, this is how we roll, okay? Because Jesus said it, we won't dodge it. Instead, we're going to dive straight in. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells an account that includes hell. And he uses imagery, okay? Some people see imagery and they just dismiss it as kind of the story-driven fantasy part of what Jesus taught. But that's not the purpose of biblical imagery. I put it in your outline this way. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. In Scripture... Imagery is pointing to a greater reality. The words are going to paint a picture, but the reality of those words can't even be encompassed within the words because the words are too limiting. All right, let me explain it this way. This is a picture that contains an image that contains a warning, all right? So if you see that hanging on a fence, you know you go on the other side of the fence and stick your hand in the wrong spot, you're going to get zapped, right? And apparently you're going to get zapped somewhat bad because the electricity is angry, right? You know, you can see that, right? Okay, We look at the picture and we think that would not be good. But I want to tell you from experience. Because I had a run-in with an electric cow fence when I was a young kid that I could not extract myself from. And I'm going to tell you something. That picture does not in any way, shape, or form capture the full experience of being electrocuted. Okay? I have been electrocuted. That picture is a nice rendering. The reality of it is so much worse. 
believe me, it's another story for another time and another message, okay? To me, I look at the picture and I go, that guy got off easy. But Jesus is in this story. He's going to paint a picture that exposes a deep and difficult reality that's far more real and difficult than the words can even portray. Okay? Let's read the Holy Bible together. Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here. You're in agony. Besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. For those of you who are theologically astute, I want, to know, I want you to know that I fully understand that this is pre-resurrection, that this is pre-to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. I understand where this fits with regards to Old Testament, New Covenant. I get all of that. What I want us to focus on today is the reality of what Jesus teaches here. This is what the Bible says. Jesus teaches that hell is a place of relational separation. I mean, I, I want you to notice that part of the description that Jesus uses includes distance. That there's relational removal. This happens in our culture. This is what happens when a person commits a crime against society. We remove them from relationship. And this man is experiencing deep pain because he's been removed from relationship. There's a loss of relationship. And it all hinges on this. The God who was once close is now far away. The God who was once intimate is now removed. And there's this great uncrossable chasm that's unfair, that's fixed between them. And nobody can come from either side. Jesus is teaching something here. It's the reality of hell. And it's about separation and isolation and profound loneliness. And I know nobody likes to hear that, but that's what Jesus says is true. The reason there's a chasm there and it's so unbelievably hopeless is because there's no redemption. There's no second chances. There's no repentance. There's no confession. There's no early release program. No, this separation, Jesus says, is permanent and forever. And forever is a really, really, really long time. When Braden and McKenna were small and they would misbehave, we would separate them from relationship. This is parenting 101, right? We put Braden in his room and he would sit on his bed and he would call to us because he hated being separated from us. We had to rethink it a little bit when we put McKenna in her room because we found out if we listened at the door that she'd actually go in there and throw a party all by herself. And so, <laughs> new angle, right? Her punishment was you have to stay right here with us, you know? <laughs> 
But for both of them, as, as their life has gone on, they realize that separation is unbelievably painful. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's a separation that doesn't have an ending to it. Jesus also teaches that hell includes a removal from God's common grace. We talked about this last week. If you breathed in the last 10 seconds, you'd experience God's common grace, whether you acknowledge that He's real or not. He just gave you life and breath. You inhaled, you exhaled, you're living. It's a gift from God. All of us are experiencing it right now. And I want you to think about this. Take that out and, and, and think about the fact that everything that's good in your life comes from God. It's a gift. Everything that's good, the best music, the best art, the best of everything is yours because it's a gift from God. Now imagine that it was completely gone and completely removed. You notice in the story what the man asks for? Water. One drop. That's all I'm looking for. I want one drop on the end of somebody's finger to cool my tongue. We can't even conceive of a life without water. Especially in the Northwest. I mean, we get God's common grace a lot, right? We can't even conceive of life without water. My question is, what if that was gone? I mean, does it have to be gone before we discover what a beautiful gift it actually is? I mean, you hear the common grace of, of God is water and it's gone and it's replaced with an unquenchable thirst that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Let's keep going. Jesus teaches that hell, the reality of hell is torment. I, I wish I could make this easier and nicer. Had a young lady after the last service. She goes, I did not enjoy a word that you said. But thank you. I mean, I want to paint it a different way, but the Bible teaches it's a place of agony and pain. And yeah, that's uncomfortable for us to talk about. Jesus also teaches that hell is a place of predictable trajectory. I mean, if you unpack the original language here, the story says the man lived his life for himself. He worshipped himself. He chose to live life on a path that took him away from God instead of on a trajectory towards God. And you notice that I specifically used the word chose. Because this comes back to that question, right? How could a loving God choose to send people to hell? The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that people choose their ultimate trajectory. They choose the direction they're going. And they either choose to live a life that honors God, that takes them on a predictable trajectory towards an eternity with God, or they make a decision to live a life on a trajectory or a path that takes them away from God, and that path has a destination as well. Now, this is amazing to me. Because even though I chose for most of my life to be on a trajectory away from God, this is where the love of God steps in. Because every step of the way that I took away from Him, He called me and pursued me and invited me to course correct the trajectory of my life. He pleads for all of His children to change the trajectory by giving themselves to the one who died for their sin so that they could be in relationship for eternity. The beauty of God. C.S. Lewis wrote many more books than just the Chronicles of Narnia, even though that's the one he's known for, right? He wrote a book called The Great Divorce that eloquently talks about the choices that we make when we choose the trajectory of our lives. C.S. Lewis said this, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end and that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. choose it. 
C.S. Lewis said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. We choose it. In fact, Lewis goes on to make this bold statement. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. This man chose a trajectory of self-exaltation, self-glorification, self-centeredness. It was all about his will and his life and his enjoyment and his comfort. And when he got to the end of his life, God respectfully honored his request for emancipation. And that's a tough, tough truth. Let's put one more in there. Jesus paints the reality of hell as a place of deep-seated regret. You notice the man wants to warn his family? Send somebody to them. Do something. Send a message. I want to remind you, because we lose it in the midst of the story, that this account is being told by the man who actually gave his life as a ransom for all sin. He embodied the message of the gospel and he lived out the words that said it is not God's will that any should perish. I mean, Jesus tells the story of a group of people at the end that won't even respond if somebody comes back from the dead. I want to remind you, he's speaking as a person that was going to do exactly that. Was going to die, come back from the dead, and yet he fully knew and acknowledged that there would still be people who would reject him. And his message. I went to Turtle Mountain Bible Camp as a kid. And every year it was the same deal, right? Show up and have a great time all weekend, you know, doing the thing, water skiing and archery and all that kind of cool stuff. And, and then in the evening you'd go to chapel, right? And Monday chapel was always, you know, Jesus made everything. And Tuesday night was Jesus is cool and wants to be your friend. And, and Wednesday night was Jesus is awesome and he's cool and he wants to be your friend. And, and, and you're a sinner and they threw that in at the end, you know. And, and you kind of work all week long until you got to Friday, right? And Friday you went to campfire. And you'd sit around and a guy would come out with a guitar. And back in the 70s he'd sing a Larry Norman tune, you, a tune you've been left behind. Anybody remember that, right? You know, the kids are kind of freaking out. Going, what was that all about? Like, that's kind of weird. And then the camp speaker would get out and go, this is the last opportunity I have to speak to you kids. And, and then he'd pick up a rock or a stick or something, and he'd throw it in the fire, and the fire would go, and he'd go, that's you. <laughs> you leave camp without Jesus, that's you. And all the kids are like, I don't want to go to hell. Do you want to go to hell? I want to do that. I don't want to burn out and be a crispy critter. What's the deal? I mean, I don't even like the smell of smoke. And this is really, really bad. How do I get to jail? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, please. I got saved every summer my whole adolescent life. Coming back to Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to go to hell. And two weeks after I got home, I'm back doing exactly what I'd done before. You know why that is? Avoiding hell is not a good reason to become a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ. It won't last. Tim Keller once said this, being afraid of hell will not keep you out of it. It's a true story. I don't believe in scaring people with the reality of hell because it doesn't last. That's why at Christ the King, we're always talking about Jesus. I put it in your outline this way. This is my response to the reality of hell. I will not run from hell but toward Jesus. That's where the hope is. That's where the freedom is. Fear can be a powerful motivator, but when the source of fear is gone, what happens? We go right back to the way we were before. You know, I fully believe that God doesn't just call us away from hell. He calls us to himself. 
and says, come, walk this path. Get on the trajectory that brings you closer to me. Follow me. Experience the joy and the love and the peace and the passion that comes from being one in relationship with the one who saved you from that reality. I mean, truthfully, if you are a dedicated follower of Jesus, hell is the non-issue for you. Because you're not staring back at it. It's just like, no, I'm going this direction. I'm going towards the cross where Jesus saved me from the sin that had just wrapped itself around me. Verse 27 is a tough verse. The man pleads for Abraham to send Lazarus from the dead to tell his brothers about hell. And Abraham basically says this, that's not enough. I'm not going to go and scare them. It's not enough. See, when people accept Christ because they're simply afraid of hell... What they're really doing is this. The motivator to be good is simply to avoid what is not good. And in that case, we just end up using God as a means to an end instead of embracing Jesus as that transforming power that completely turns our lives around. Okay, here comes the argument. I knew we were going to get to it. Some of you are freaking out. It's like, that's his introduction? Oh, right? Okay, just stick with me. I did my pastoral internship in Brandon, Manitoba, and uh, so I show up the first day, and I'm in a, you know, training to be a pastor, and the pastor says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to do, teach uh, adult Sunday school, preach on Sunday morning, preach on Sunday night, do the Wednesday evening adult Bible study, and you're going to lead the choir. Woo! <laughs> and then he said, I'm leaving. Like, I'll be back about a month or so. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. But mostly, I just want you to sit by the phone and answer it when they call. Second day, second day. Phone rings, I pick it up. It's Brandon General Hospital. And they say, we have a lady, one of your parishioners is here. She's preparing to come to the end of her life, and she's requested that a pastor come and see her. So I go to Brandon General Hospital, and I'm freaking out, right? I don't know anything. When I walked in that hospital room, I was so unbelievably relieved because the lady in the bed was Elizabeth Sutherland. Elizabeth lived to be more than 100 years old. She prayed for me every day of my life while she was alive. And I walked in the door, and Elizabeth was talking about heaven and singing hymns, quoting entire books of the Bible. She's 100, and she quoted the entire Gospel of John from beginning to end. Unbelievable person. It was amazing. It was an amazing experience, and she didn't die. So I went home thinking, I'm really good at this, you know? (laughs) This is awesome. It's good, right? idiot. Anyway, <laughs> a couple of years later, I'm a youth pastor in Steinbach, Manitoba, and I get called to the local hospital because family in our church was having an emergency, and I went, and the emergency actually got taken care of, and so I'm getting ready to leave, and as I'm walking out the door, the nurse says, excuse me, are you a pastor? I'm like, yeah, I am. And she says, well, we have a family here. Their mom is nearing the end of her life, and they've requested pastoral care. We can't get a hold of the chaplain. Would you be willing to go and, and see them? I'm like, sure. So I walk into the room and the family's kind of standing around there and they're like, oh, are you the pastor? I introduce them. I'm Grant Emanuel Evangelical Free Church. I'm like, oh, good, okay. We'll just step outside and like you can do your thing. And they all walk out. I'm like, my thing? Like, I'm going to sprinkle clergy dust over her? Like, what do you want me to do? I don't know what, you want me to pray? I... So I sat down and I met Millie. I tell Millie who I am, and I said, Millie, have you made your peace with God? And she said, no. So 
I launch into the gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm a good Baptist kid, so I took her on the Roman road to salvation. Okay? Some of you are like, yeah, that's what we're talking about right there. Started Romans 3, started working from there, laid out the plan of salvation as best I could, and then I asked her the question, Millie, would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior right now? And she squeezed my hand and said, no thank you, dear. That was not the right answer. Like, no thank you, dear. Like, you're not supposed to turn this down, and especially not politely. What, what do you mean, no, thank you? That, that, no, that, that, that's, that's not the way this is supposed to go. I'm supposed to do this, and then you're supposed to cry, and then I'm supposed to cry, and then we pray together, and then it's all good, and your family comes back in, and, and it's going to be awesome. And her answer was no. So her family comes back into the room, and they give me that look like, we're good, right? I hate saying this, but it's true. I didn't know what else to say, to us, so I lied to them. And I left. And I got in my car in the middle of the Manitoba winter, and I drove home, and I argued with God all the way home. And my argument with God went like this. How could hell for Millie possibly be right? It doesn't make any sense. And I get it, I get it for the bad people, but she seemed, she seemed so unbelievably sweet. And when I finally stopped yakking, when I finally stopped talking, this is what God said to me in the depth of my soul. It's not right. There's nothing right about it. She's my daughter. I loved her. I've called to her every moment of her life. I've begged her to change the trajectory of her life. I died so that she could know me. I kept asking over and over and over again. And her answer was always no. There's nothing right about this. Grant, my heart is broken over this. I don't want this. I don't want this choice. I want my children to live. I came that they would have life and have it to the full. And she just pushed it back. I don't like any of this. I basically ended up saying, I stand corrected. My prayer this weekend is that you'll hear God's heart in this message. The loving heart of God that says, there are two trajectories. Choose the one that brings you towards me. Please. My prayer is that you'll reject misperceptions about God's character. That if you've always believed that somehow God got some kind of a kick out of this whole thing, that you would stand before God today and just say, I stand corrected. I was wrong. My prayer is that we'll all take responsibility for the trajectory of our lives. My prayer is that the reality of Jesus will draw us towards an eternity with Him. Not without Him. I studied this all week, all week long. And when I got to the end of my study this week, opening the Word of God, there were two conclusions that I came to. Number one is that I don't take my sin nearly as seriously as God does. I just don't. I just shrug it off and keep on moving. 
this week, I heard God over and over and over again, every single time I sinned, whisper in my ear. And you know what he said? I died for that too. This is what else I learned this week. Did anybody notice in the story what Abraham calls the man? Son. My son. My kid got the flu this week, and I was like upside down. You're going to get enough water? Who's going to bring you hot soup? I mean, you're living in the dorm now at college, all the rest of this kind of stuff. I mean, that completely turned me over. This story just shows, once again, the father heart of God and the heartbreak that he experiences when his children see everything that he's done and their responses. No, thank you, dear. You have no idea how much I want to just tell you a nice, warm, fuzzy story right now so we can all just be okay because, like, the tension in the room is like... I don't apologize for what the Bible says because I think God really wants us to grapple with this. Struggle with it. How do we find God's love in the midst of this? I think it's there. The question is, is it enough to cause us to change trajectory? Let's pray together this morning as we close. Father God, I pray for each one of us and I pray that for those who are here who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that they would know that their trajectory is taking them to a beautiful destination beyond eternity. And I pray that we would be so unbelievably thankful this weekend for the fact that of all people, that you would love us to the point of drawing us to yourself. I pray for God's people that we would see your common grace and your personal specific grace and that we would walk out of here today just deeply blessed that we've been rescued, saved. Lord, I pray for those right now who may be skeptical, who who are just uncomfortable in the midst of this, I pray that they would hear you calling to them. Saying, change the trajectory of your life. Don't push my love away. Receive it. That's why I gave it.